0: For over 50 years, foreign correspondent and world affairs editor John Simpson has risked life and limb reporting for the BBC. The Tiananmen Square massacre, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, Zimbabwe, Bosnia, you name it, he was there. He's been punched by a UK Prime Minister, bombed by friendly fire, met Gaddafi in Bedouin tents across Libya, watched Saddam Hussein's execution in court, and whilst experimenting with some hallucinogenic offerings in the deepest Amazon, was once hugged by a six-foot goldfish wearing sunglasses. A man who's always topped my list of dream guests, here he is in the flesh, John Simpson the things that I've struggled with at the thought of interviewing you is how to narrow down your travels.
1: There are of course uh, uh, quite a lot of travels because I've been doing this for 50 years but uh, you know some of them stand out more more than others and some places stand out. I couldn't begin to tell you how many times I've been to Brussels because I've never bothered to work it up but I can tell you how many times I've been to Iran or Afghanistan or or or, or China or something because uh, somehow or another it's just you know it always leaves a uh, uh, something in the memory it's a um, very
0: very standout uh, occasions not just for your own personal life but in in history you know recent and like you said 50 50 years ago as well i, I read on wikipedia so it's got to be true hmm. that uh what on your first day in your job at the bbc you got punched in the stomach by the then prime minister harold wilson is that true
1: it's almost true I, it was my first day as a reporter actually uh, but uh, so it was about three years into my time in the BBC but every, in every other way entirely true i was uh, there, there were suggestions in the press that, that Wilson was going to call an election this was 1970. And uh, my boss, who was as new to the job as I I was, said, just go and ask him. He's going to be at, at a photo opportunity on Euston Station in London, Platform 7. I could take you to the very, very place all these years later. And yeah, he went absolutely berserk when I asked him and punched me really hard in the stomach and tried to wrestle the microphone out of my hand and said that uh, uh, he was going to put in a personal complaint to the director general about my appalling behaviour. Fortunately, he uh, he obviously changed his mind. Was it on camera? It was not only on our cameras, but it was the cameras of the world, because at that stage, hard to believe in these Brexit days, but Even the suggestion of an election in Britain was world news. And so there were all the American networks there, all the big uh, European broadcasters were there, radio, television, all the newspapers. But, you know, it was a different era. So the fact that the prime minister assaulted a rate pair on Platform 7 of Euston Station. didn't make any news anywhere. People just thought it was stupid of me to have tried to get an interview.
0: Can with you me. imagine it'd be on the front page of oh. every single news but It's not well, a bad thing, actually. I might try and get Theresa May to punch me, it might get me some attention. <laughs> um, you mentioned the B words, uh, the Brexit words, and I was going to ask you about that. But I'm going to, I'll come to that in the end, um, because... To be honest, who has a clue what's going on with that at the mm. moment? So I was looking through a little bit of uh, your, your CV in terms of travel. And, well, it's just you were with the Ayatollah in 1979, going from Paris to Tehran, which, of course, started the Iranian revolution, Tiananmen Square, uh, the fall of Ce- Ceausescu regime, Baghdad, smuggling yourself into countries in a burqa. <laughs> what was the first place that you went to that felt truly foreign, maybe?
1: Well, actually, that was before I even went to university, let alone to the BBC, 1962. It was the worst winter uh, in Britain for X years. And my father and I lived on our own in a huge house in Dunwich on the coast, huge and hideous house. And um, all the pipes froze. Uh, My father said, bugger this, we're... We're going to see Casablanca. I thought he meant the film, so I said, "Oh, where's it showing?" And he said, "You absolute idiot, it's the place, and we're flying there tomorrow so i I went to Casablanca I, I haven't been back there. I don't know what it's like now. I've been back to Morocco loads of times, so but never to Casablanca, but then it was incredibly sort of you know different and exciting and uh scary, and uh you know being pushed around in crowds and Uh, of local people all of whom wore wore dishdashers or headdresses all sorts of things I mean again uh, rather different from from today wonderful time and I'd always been interested in travel even though I'd never done any really but that just absolutely cemented it for me
0: and then you were sent as foreign correspondent to over 50 wars are we talking there
1: getting on for 50, I think mean it's 48 or something. Should we start? But, I mean, what kind of person adds it up? You know, it's quite sad, isn't well, people
0: it? people do, people do. Um, and that is, that is something to do with travel these days, with the whole sort of Instagram generation. People do collect countries and... Uh, I'm afraid
1: I do a bit too. Yeah, everyone does. Yeah. But I despise everybody else. <laughs> you hate else. yourself for it. But uh, Yes, yeah, hate yeah. myself, despise everybody else, but I still do it. So
0: how many are we talking? It's 150 um,
1: plus, isn't it? It is, oh, yeah. yes. Actually, I have, I have now... Honestly, hand on heart lost track, but I did add it up once and it it was getting on for 150, I think it must be now. Although I don't often go anywhere now that I haven't been to loads of times before, except... In December, I went to Greenland to do some reporting. I don't really recommend it. I haven't much.
0: been. Have no, you know, well. It just looks, you look on the map and you think it looks very empty. Very A few empty. things around the edges. So not very nice empty. Not very no. nice
1: empty. It's colder. There, there were beautiful, one or two beautiful bits, but I didn't like the eating whale meat. And I didn't like seeing polar bear furs everywhere you, you see they all in all the shops you can buy a, a polar bear cover I mean from a real polar bear I thought if I bought one of those and took it back it wasn't very expensive wore it
0: down Oxford Street you,
1: well I'd, I mean I wouldn't even get to wear it out of the house because my wife would murder me
0: it's hard though isn't it that sort of cultural those differences where people are actually wearing polar bear because it's warm because presumably it's warm and but... they,
1: a lot of them kill them themselves I mean it's you know, it's not like our sort of society where somebody else does all the nasty stuff and, uh, and, and you just wear it for the fur. I mean, they, you know, that's, that's practical reasons it, behind it. Yes, but yes. then I guess
0: in this day and age, there doesn't have to be practical reasons behind it because, you know, there is the technology to make.
1: Yeah, but, they're, but they're, you know, pretty poor in, yes, uh, yeah. in Greenland. But I'm glad I went. I'm glad I went. I just don't think I shall be going back. You mentioned
0: your dad and actually one of it reminded me that one of the things I look forward to most when travelling is your column in the BA Aww. High Life magazine. I do. I sit there with my phone oh, and I take pictures oh, of paragraphs dear. of it. I don't know oh. what I'm going to do with those paragraphs. I think it was with a bid to sort of interview. And of course, with all those pictures, I've just, you know, forgotten them completely. Yeah. Um, but let's uh, let's talk about Iran, because one of the yes. first things on my list of your, this incredible travel CV is the the journey you made with the Ayatollah in 19. 19- 1979 Nine. to be greeted by millions of people thronging the streets tell me let's let's start with that one
1: well it was exciting uh, i i can't deny it you know i did a lot of things I, it, it's rather sort of human nature to say i oh, know it wasn't anything much but uh, this this was quite a, a thing I had to queue up for 12 hours in the absolute freezing cold. I've still got a painful shoulder as a result of it. All these years later, in Paris, outside his the place where he, he'd um, been exiled, uh, to buy a ticket, to buy two tickets, one for me, one for the cameraman. And in the end, they only started selling them after it got dark and it was very windy. So, and you could only pay in $100 bills. So the wind was blowing the $100 bills and the tickets all the way around. But I grabbed hold of mine. And then, carefully organized, I rang the BBC and said, I've got tickets for the Ayatollah's flight. And my boss said, Well, you're not going because it's too dangerous and we don't we don't want to have you in Tehran we want you to be in London telling us what's going on from London and so I I'm afraid uh, was rather rude and I said fuck off and I put the phone down well I didn't think I was going to survive you see so I thought I could you know behave well I mean Going back and seeing him afterwards was slightly awkward. Then we we took off, and uh, it was a, an Air France charter. Khomeini and all his mates uh, were up in the front in first class, and the, the journalists. There weren't very many of us, and uh, lots and lots of students who supported him in the back of the plane. And at one moment, the curtains opened, and out came one of his spokesmen, stood up on one of the seats, and said, "I think I ought to tell you." that we've just received news that when we enter Iranian airspace, uh, the Shah's Air Force has orders to shoot us down. So lots and lots of... Uh, um, actually, the first reaction when all the students was to cheer because they thought they were going to be martyred with their hero. My cameraman said, well, what's he saying? <laughs> and I said, oh, maybe I'll tell you later. You know, don't worry now. But of course, we weren't shot down. And it was supposedly the biggest crowd in human history, two million, three million, nobody knows how many, awful lot of people. And yeah, one of the most exciting, frightening, disturbing, but immensely kind of satisfying moments of my life. I'm
0: glad you said frightening, because I was going to ask if you have fear. You went, you said, onto that journey thinking, I might. I might not survive this, but still willing to go anywhere. And you've been Tiananmen Square, for example. I, most people my generation and, and younger will remember the tank and, and the yes. student. But what that was people... our
1: pictures. Those, those, uh, it was indeed, wasn't it? That man with his shopping bags. Do yes.
0: people know what happened to him?
1: And nobody's ever found out. He, his name never came out. Uh, very cleverly, he, he didn't make a fuss about it. I assume, therefore, that he, he got away with it. Uh, Quite a lot of them did, actually. After a while, when everything had calmed down, the government just sort of stopped searching for them.
0: But the... I think what people do not do forget, and not people like you who were, were there, obviously, but thousands of people, an estimated 10,000 in some estimates, they'll never really know, were, were killed
1: Yeah. There. Well, so I saw quite a lot myself being, I mean, sh- being shot and killed.
0: So were you and the man scared? standing
1: next to me was killed.
0: What happened in that incident?
1: Uh, well, we were up on a balcony. It's where we got the shots a few hours later of of the man with the with the bags in front of the tank. And uh, there was a, it was a South Korean cameraman, rather rather nice, rather sweet, gentle bloke. He was just in the, in the next balcony to ours, in the next room, and uh, we we talked a lot across the, didn't quite bit anyway, across the the gap. And then the the army, uh, when it finally came in, there were guys standing on the top of armoured armoured personnel carriers, just shooting at anything they chose. And Missed us, but uh, the guy took a a bullet in the head and died. And I must have seen myself 50 50 or so people shot, lying there dead. So what are you thinking
0: about your own safety at that point? Well, I know
1: it probably seems unlikely, but I mean, it is actually true that you get, on those kind of occasions, you get so wrapped up in it that... Your own safety is less seems to be less important than what's happening around you, and all you want to do is to see what's happening and work out how you're going to get it back. I mean, that's only one type of situation. That's that's a, a particularly sort of unusual one, really, where you're you know, faced with guns and uh, the bullets are going off all, all around you. I mean, much more worrying, much more frightening is being in a in a crowd that's attacking you. I mean, I've, we've had that. And that is horribly scary. When you see the faces of people that, well, in one particular instance, you know, going, planning to tear you to pieces, that that isn't, a, a bundle of laughs. What, but, what was that incident? Well, that was in Iran, actually, during the revolution, but, but before the final end of the revolution. So it must be, I suppose, it must be November 1978. And I was called away, left my crew filming in the streets, nothing very much happening. Went away to do a broadcast, came back, took ages and ages and ages to do it and uh, couldn't get a cab to drive me. They said it was too da- dangerous. So I walked through the streets which was something in itself i was really quite lucky to get through and in a crowd of a million i spotted my own colleagues and they weren't anywhere near where i'd left them and uh, that was i thought fantastic we were then surrounded by a group of of people who got more and more hostile until finally said so there was somebody sort of stirring them up and uh, they started ripping our clothes and scratching uh, you know I had long scratches on my arms and chest afterwards it wasn't going to stop and there was a little man I, I was kind of offended but I know it, it probably sounds really stupid to you and it is stupid but I'm a big bloke you know I'm six foot two but somebody or two people were hanging onto my arms behind my back And this horrible little freak, uh, who was about five foot two or something, was whacking me in the face with a broomstick on which was pinned a, a photograph of Ayatollah Khomeini. And he was whacking me in the face. Blood was running down my face. And I just, I I forgot everything else that was going on. I forgot how close I was to being killed. And I just was really quite annoyed by this. And I managed, uh, it was a cold day, but everybody was sweating a lot through exertion and fear and everything else. I managed to get one hand free. And I grabbed the pole this kid was, this man, little man was hitting me with. I grabbed it off him and I whacked him and that felt really good. And then I thought, wait a moment, I you know, I can do better than this. So I wagged it in the air and I said, what I probably shouldn't have done as a BBC correspondent, I said, uh, Javid Khomeini, long live Khomeini. And the crowd immediately stopped and we were the big heroes. And I had what the cameraman was, a sort of real old school BBC guy. And as we walked away... You know, and they were patting us on the back and, and giving us food and all sorts of things, apologising for our torn clothes. As we walked away, the, the cameraman said, you shouldn't have done that, John. And I said, what do you mean? Same if I tonight. hadn't done that, they'd be, they'd be still trying to work out which arms belong to which body. And then he said just two wonderful words, really. He said, even so. <laughs> I thought, oh, that this is was going beyond
0: really... the Call of Duty though for your job <laughs> as the BBC. Do you ever get in a situation where you think you know I really I really shouldn't have come here?
1: Oh yes, well I yeah loads and loads and loads. But I I mean I you know I like to of course I'm I I quite like it if people think I'm incredibly brave and so on. I really am not. I'm one of those quite scared people that think that they're going to get killed, knocked around all the time. And I can sort of visualize it happening. But the thing is, what I've I've learned to sort of circumvent that by setting myself a some sort of target and then committing myself to it, so I can't go back. A bit like getting on the plane with Ayatollah Khomeini. I mean, I it would have been so easy to have got out of that. I don't know. In fact, the, as I say, the BBC was ordering me not to go. But if you kind of commit yourself and there's no way back, well, then you've got to go through with it.
0: So what is it do you think that's driving you? Is it the need to expose things, the need to tell the truth? Some well, place of course, of justice? I'd love to
1: say all of those things. I think often, actually, it's just it's just a kind of curiosity. I want to know I want to see around the next corner. I want to know what's going to happen, and I, I don't want to read about it in the next morning's newspapers. I want to be able to see it for myself. But none of that means I'm not I'm not scared because I I often often have. it's just that I've learned the one one of the various things I've learned is that actually you can usually get an awful lot closer to the action than your fears kind of dictate so if you do just force your way through you you tend to do quite well
0: that thing about uh, wanting to see what's around the next corner. This is something I talk quite a lot about the philosophy of travel with some of my guests and yeah. what drives you know human humans to travel. And I think it is that urge to explore, to see what's around the next corner, to see how we can better our lives. I mean, I know mm. you're going to places to report on them, but does the element of travel come into it? That exhilaration that you're actually going somewhere that's pretty incredible, as as well as you know entering a, a war zone.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I get a real kick out of of being in places where other people aren't last week where did I take my wife and 13 year old son for half term holiday took them to Beirut I mean actually Beirut is a very peaceful place now but there's always that possibility of the odd car bomb and so on and we went from there to the town of Byblos which is absolutely gorgeous and which neither of them have seen and uh, we had a lovely little time there for a few days it's It is that sense. It's like, you know, it's like that instinct that when you see a, a patch of snow, you want to put your footprints on it. It's that it's that feeling of going to places where you won't bump into lots of other people like yourself.
0: I, I've read, you know, about your son and fatherhood the second time round, mm. and has that affected the way you travel? Because I've got two very young boys; they're six and four, and it has. I thought I'd be slinging them, you know, into a suitcase and heading off around the world when they were they'd just got their first jabs, and actually, we've only been to European destinations with them so far. We're going further afield, but it, it has sli- made me a little bit more nervous than I was before. Because you can't necessarily run as easy when you've got a you know a, a couple of <laughs> small people with you and people to look after. Has that changed you a little it, bit? It has
1: a bit. Uh, it's changed the kind of places I go on holiday. But now, I mean, in six seven years' time, you'll you'll be in that zone. Uh, you don't need to worry so much about him. I mean, uh, you know, about them. Uh, my kid uh, at thirteen is really quite good at looking after himself. I wouldn't take him anywhere more dodgy than than Lebanon. I mean, and and I know that Lebanon is perfectly peaceful at the moment, and I wouldn't have taken him there if it wasn't. But I, I just think it, it, it's all a matter of, of job. Of course, you don't take a little baby to to somewhere uh, where, you know, there's trouble or where, you know, there's possibility of, of, uh, of disease or, or something like that. Of course, you don't. But afterwards, in the years that follow, I think it's quite good to take them, you know, just like my dad took me to to Casablanca, not the film.
0: Also also things can happen anywhere, can't they? You know, in in London, you know, where we're Mm. sitting now and Mm. absolutely anywhere. You were one of the handful, I remember the footage of this, you were one of a handful of journalists to remain in Belgrade um, during the Kosovo. My wife was with me. Oh really? Was yeah, she?
1: Yeah, yeah. She when well, she came and joined me, which is actually more difficult than uh, than being there, you know, right through from the start. Yeah, and and I did something which I haven't really written about very much because it's I always feel it slightly, uh, it's it's not quite as glamorous as it ought to be. She and I had the whole run of a Hyatt hotel, real sort of top. Five star hotel. I think one other person staying there. So we had the best of the suites and it had a jacuzzi. And one morning we were in the jacuzzi and we got out and I walked down the steps and I slipped on the steps. And I ruptured the tendon to my knee, the main tendon, really, really bad injury. So she had to take me off to the hospital. And unfortunately, it was during the NATO bombing of Belgrade. And the Americans, with that tact and care that they're so well known for, have managed to bomb the hospital the night before. So I wasn't the most popular patient there. And... Actually, while I was on the, the operating table, I was kind of half aware of it. The professor of the surgeon who was doing the operation came bursting in and said, leave this bastard. He's, uh, you know, he comes from NATO, NATO country. It's your patriotic duty to leave him. And then and the surgeon started shouting, I took a Hippocratic oath. Get out of my operating theater. and They nearly came to blows. Anyway. At the end of this operation, which actually was really good, the guy did an excellent job on me, and I'm fine for walking and everything. Uh, Now it doesn't hurt in the slightest. But at the end of it, I was absolutely determined that the BBC shouldn't send me home. And the only way to do that was not to tell anybody. So I, I swore all my team there to secrecy and they used to make it well really at that stage it wasn't possible to do any filming which was good from my point of view since I couldn't walk my leg was in a sort of type of concrete from heel to top so they used to take me down to do pieces to camera (laughs) only I looked at them all afterwards Day after day after day, I'd do these pieces. I was never st- quite standing straight. I was always <laughs> at a slight angle.
0: Well, I love it that you've been. You're there. You know the, the people are being bombed and shut out, and you've you've got a jacuzzi injury. Yes.
1: Well, that's what I really love, you see. I, I don't like being uncomfortable. I I like I like comfort. Yeah, that was the nicest thing of it. I was sad when the whole thing came to an end, really, except for, you know, people weren't dying any longer.
0: They're disguising yourself as a, in a burqa and one of the first reporters to enter Afghanistan in 2001. Yes. You're, you're a very tall man. How did you get away with the burqa?
1: Well, I was I was the, the tallest woman in, in Afghanistan. Whose idea <laughs> was that? Was
0: that your idea?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't. I wanted to get in. The, the Taliban had thrown out every all uh, every foreigner foreign journalist foreigner I think and they said that if any journalist tried to come in they'd shoot them and I know that of course uh, you know one should be sensible and careful but that rather was kind of slight irritant to me and I just thought you know well I'll I'll bug it if they're going to stop me going in And then the way that I chose, rightly or wrongly, was to get a a bunch of cross-border smugglers to take me in from Pakistan, from the Khyber Pass, up the Khyber Pass and across. And I just put myself in their hands and said, you know, you tell me, what what shall I dress up as an Afghan, which I've done various times before, not terribly convincing (laughs) Afghan, but, uh, you know, I can do it. And they said, no, 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 you've got to dress as a woman. It wasn't my idea, I promise. I, you know, there's always something, I always feel people think there's something slightly sexually dodgy about about it. Well,
0: it's not like um, you're in drag, you're in a burqa. I was a in difference. a burqa,
1: but it was a form of drag. I mean, it's as close <laughs> as you get to drag in, in Afghanistan, really. And it was fascinating stuff. I mean... It was like wearing a cloak of invisibility. You ceased to exist. Immediately you put it on. So that, for instance, I was, I was telling the head of the, the gang, the smuggler's gang, what I wanted to do, where I wanted to do it, how long, all the different uh, details. And I was doing that as my dear old driver, wonderful man, was helping me on with the burqa. And halfway through, I'd put the actual thing on, the top, you know, with that lace cover that you, it's really difficult to see through and the smuggler stopped talking to me and he then started talking, talking to the driver because I'd become a woman therefore I'd cease to exist
0: that is horrifying in many is. ways. Uh, I mean, and people do, I, you know, like you hear of people choosing to wear it because they want to mm. go under the radar. And I don't mean because mm. they want to get into a, a war-torn country. Well, they for want to women, it, it means
1: it. they don't get hit on all the time. I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people in Afghanistan about this. And there are quite a lot of women, traditional women, who just feel much more comfortable that way.
0: I'd love, I've always wanted to go to Af- Afghanistan ever oh, since reading. Well, like, it's difficult at the moment. But at at some, um, some point, some point, I will. One do. day, One you day. know,
1: it'll be it'll be better.
0: Yes, and people are going now, mm, aren't they? They, they, they really are. are. I mean, there's no charter flights or anything. But ever since reading, do you remember Dervla Murphy cycled yes. across, well, across from Love Dublin it. to Delhi? Didn't didn't she? But yes. I remember the stories she had in Afghanistan were just so beautiful and romantic and evocative, and the the landscape. Do you have time to to look around and appreciate the view?
1: Oh yes, but in Afghanistan well frankly there's not much else really I, I mean my heart goes out to those wonderful mountains and uh, and those those places i've ridden across them on horseback and uh, walked walked along i don't know if you've ever perhaps you've interviewed him for this uh, podcast uh, rory uh, rory stewart the no. Tory MP. He was in Afghanistan. He walked right across Afghanistan from west to east with his dog on his own. Wonderful book about oh, no, it. I forget I what it's called. He's, he, he's well worth talking to.
0: I had Levison Wood on recently and he's oh, not yes. long come back from there. Yes. Uh, he had some good stories. He's excellent. You got you got injured by friendly fire, didn't you? In, uh, where was that? Iraq. In Iraq. Oh, yeah, what happened there? In,
1: in 2003. It was on the day that the invasion actually started in, when would that have been? April, I think it was 2003, yes. We're in no man's land we were following a group of Kurdish special services guys who were fighting on the Allied side. And uh, we saw down in the valley some of Saddam's tanks that were firing up towards us, but they were overshooting by some way. So the shells were landing, oh, I don't know, about a quarter of a mile beyond us and didn't feel any great threat. But there was uh, there were some American special forces there as well and the captain in charge called in a, an airstrike on the tanks. Somehow or another between him and the aeroplane, which had been circling around for ages and ages and ages, they managed to get it wrong. So instead of attacking the uh, map reference where the the tanks were, they attacked the map reference that the message was coming from.
0: That's a very big mistake.
1: Oh, that's quite a quite a mistake. So the bomb landed. Well, we trod it out afterwards, eleven yards from where I was standing, and where my translator was, and the translator lost his legs and died of blood loss. Uh, absolutely terrible. And I I keep his photograph. On my desk, so I'll never, never, never f- forget him. Uh, because you know, I led him into that. It's, I feel really awful about it. I had shrapnel. I got a big bit of shrapnel in my leg. But I, uh, there, there was an extraordinary chance for a bomb that so, that so close that landed so closely, a thousand pound bomb. But it, it all the blast just, just missed me. Hit him. Miss me. My producer was. It was his birthday, and he was walking down to where I was, and his mother called him to wish him a happy birthday. And he said, oh, we're having a great time. I mean, he knew she was against the war. So he said, listen, this is a sound of freedom, just to get a rise out of her. And he held up the phone, and she could hear the, the, the aircraft. And, she, and then the sound of the bomb came. And uh, ages later, maybe five, ten minutes later, he suddenly realised she's still on the line. And uh, there was all the screaming. Eighteen people, I think, died. Most of them burned to death. I mean, it was horrible, horrible, horrible business. He said, "Mum, mum, 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 I'm, okay. I'm okay, mum." And and she said, "No, I, 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 I know you were, darling, because I heard the language."
0: You must have felt very lucky in a way.
1: Ah. Uh, I couldn't believe it, actually. I, uh, I, I just thought that, you know, this doesn't really happen. I mean, you don't get that close to, a, to an exploding thousand-pound bomb and walk away from it.
0: Did you get close um, to Saddam at any point? I know you met Gaddafi, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did. I, yeah, I, was, I got, I got uh, close to Saddam quite a few times. They wouldn't let me interview him because they demanded to know all the questions beforehand and to cut out the ones they didn't like. And, uh, you know, that's kind of against BBC policy. So ITN did an interview with him instead of me, which I was really pissed off about at the time but now you know it doesn't i you know what i i well i went right through saddam's trial every day i was in the courtroom and i was there when he was executed i watched him die and i mean okay fine you a a wicked man in many many ways terrible blood on his hands blood of a million people in many in some respects
0: how do you feel watching him die
1: oh that was awful and that was disgraceful, and the, oh, it was, it was terrible. the The um, Iraqi Shiites uh, executed him, and uh, they were screaming insults at him. and I thought he behaved incredibly bravely and with great dignity, and I was appalled. I, I, I yelled out when his when he went down through the trap door. Now, that was, uh, the whole thing was awful in every way. And and Saddam was, in many ways, the worst of the lot. But he did end his life, certainly, with great dignity.
0: It must be very, well, it is very, not just there, you know, as a, a bystander on the other side of the world, it's very conflicting to mm. see this man that supposedly done, well, not supposedly, has done some terrible things, but has, have had other people on different sides of, of the argument. But then... You know, killing him is a very dreadful thing as well. It's just there's a lot of conflicting emotions.
1: But that, you see, I think that's part of understanding what what the world's about. Uh, I've, I don't really have very much time for people who go to these situations with their minds absolutely made up. There's, you know, right and wrong and there's black and white and there's a clear... Conclusion that everything should come to, I think is always, always more complicated than. I mean, I'm not saying that if I covered, uh, you know, D-Day or something, I would say, oh well, it's something on both sides to be said (laughs) for. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not, not saying that at all. But uh, it, it, things are rarely as obvious as the editorials in, in the, the papers make out.
0: And you met Gaddafi as well. Was that in a Bedouin tent?
1: Various times, actually. Him, yeah. Yes, yes. Because, I think it was always in a Bedouin yeah. tent.
0: <laughs> uh, what was he like?
1: Completely barking. Completely barking. I thought quite sort of jovial. Could never work it out. I thought that he was a, um, a, just a sort of figurehead. Uh, who had led the revolution and he was just sort of kept in there by nastier people below him. But as it turned out, after his horrible death, all these things came out about the mass rapes he'd carried out and the way that he murdered the girls that he'd raped and uh, and boys. And uh, I mean, really a despicable kind of character, not at all a, the sort of knockabout uh, absurd figure that I'd Rather got the impression of. I mean, it was absurd, but uh, much, much nastier underneath, and that only came came out after after his death.
0: Does it feel strange that he knows, or he knew you? You know, he'd know you. He'd have conversations about you. You'd be part. You'd be in his psyche.
1: I know it does seem funny. And actually, it was Saddam so that that it sort of came up with uh, in 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 a particular way because I tried to get into. Baghdad just before the invasion in 2003 and the information minister gave me a visa and Saddam was one of those people he's got to know absolutely everything he's got to have a view on everything so the poor old information minister has to get had to go to see him every week and say who he was letting in and I'd done a panorama about a month before which pinpointed Some of the things that Saddam had done, not very favourably to Saddam, to say the least. And apparently, well, so the minister said, told me afterwards, uh, when he went in to see him, Saddam went berserk and said, this man is my personal enemy. You've let him in. You're a traitor. Get him off that list at once and I'll think what I'm going to do about you. And then he paused, according to the information minister, and he said, now, on second thought, give him a visa, and we'll sort him out when he gets here. And the the minister then just didn't do anything about it. Didn't give me a visa. Ah, you know, maybe he was just that was a story, and he was trying to, you know, uh, you don't carry know, but favour, he, he, he but, would definitely he would but, definitely
0: know you. You know, these people, yes, like, you would be on the some
1: do. I mean, mo- for most, I, I'm sure most most of the world's leaders don't. Give us stuff and wouldn't know who I was from. People think I'm David Attenborough. Anyway, so it was the, you know. Oh, Mr Attenborough. <laughs> that could be quite useful at some time. Well, it could be, yes, yes. It,
0: it Carry could. a little lizard around with you or something like that. You'll be able to get the best uh, access. Um, you're always up for it. Uh, you're up for everything, I think, which is wonderful. But one thing I loved reading about you is that you've freely admitted to using hallucinogenic drugs offered to you by locals in various jungles of the world, including revealing that one hallucination included a six-foot goldfish, putting its flipper around your shoulders while wearing dark glasses and a street. Hat. that sounds like some pretty good gear that what was. the hell was that about i've
1: only actually taken it once i'm a rather sort of you know i grew up in the 50s it's not there wasn't a great drug taking era but uh, yeah i was in uh, the farthest reaches of the amazon quite near the peruvian border i mean it's about one of the two or three wildest places on earth and uh, we came across a tribe who'd never seen anybody out from outside before. Absolutely lovely people called the Ashaninka. And uh, a little girl was ill and they had a ceremony in the village, you know, to make a well that involved this this hallucinogenic drug called ayahuasca daime they sometimes call it and they made me drink it i I was nervous because people said it 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 opens the gates of hell or something and you throw up every meal you've ever eaten or something and i was was terrified. yeah yeah. but actually it it tasted disgusting but didn't have any bad effects on me and and yeah all these things i'm afraid happened the there were sort of wild firework displays in the forest, and the trees started bending down and talking to each other and yeah, uh, a six foot goldfish with a straw hat and dark glasses came over, and he did indeed put his flipper around my shoulder and the said, how's it yeah, very funny, how's it going, man?" and I just thought, uh uh-uh, ah, this is too far for me and something about that particular hallucinogenic drug, ayahuasca, means that you have a kind of mental control over it. So when I thought, I don't like this anymore, the moon, which had been right in my face, went back, the trees stopped talking to each other, the fireworks went off, the goldfish vanished and was (laughs) never seen again. But about half an hour later, or an hour later, I thought, yeah, I didn't like the goldfish much, that was scary, but... I did like the fireworks and started up again but only the fireworks and then only for as long as I when I thought oh god I'm really tired I think I'm going to go back to my hammock. At that stage again fireworks stopped and uh, just a nice feeling of sort of calm and uh, pleasure.
0: You could make a fortune bringing that stuff over here. Well,
1: My girlfriend at the time was really cross with me for not doing it she was a real 70s American hippie but uh, yeah yeah I should.
0: What have your travels taught you about going to so many war-torn places what have they taught you about humanity do you do you feel positive about the world?
1: I really do I, I mean I've I really feel positive you know in the fifty years I've I've been reporting on things, the number of wars, for instance, has halved at least. Maybe it's more than more than halved. The number of dictatorships has shrunk enormously. When I became a, a correspondent, I think there were only about twenty proper democracies. Now, you know, almost every kind 180 democracies they aren't real democracies many of them but at least they know they've got to pretend to be to look real and a billion people taken out of poverty lifted out of poverty I mean that's absolutely magnificent so I'm really positive about things I mean I there's things I'm not of course, positive about. And I mean, hard to look across the Atlantic and see Donald Trump and feel positive about America at the moment. But, you know, we know that that'll that'll pass. And me personally, I mean, I used to be quite a kind of uptight, I probably still am quite uptight, but I try not to be kind of person I you know you don't show your emotions you don't do this and that and when I went I became the the BBC correspondent in South Africa and covering the whole of Southern Africa so then what was then Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe one of my favorite countries on earth even now I learned the the huge benefits of just kind of showing a bit of Emotion and a bit of friendship for people. I don't think I'd ever done it before, really. But I'm putting my arms around people uh, that I hadn't I hadn't met before. And you know, I mean, in in Zimbabwe and South Africa in particular, people are very, very warm. And if you show any hint of warmth yourself, then it's reciprocated fourfold. And that I've, I, I'm glad to have learned that. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't like it if you put your hand on their shoulder or, or squeeze their hand. And, and yeah, but I mean, if they don't like it, well, bugger off. You know, I don't care.
0: I think a, you know, a, a touch or a, a show of friendship when you're travelling, it, it goes a long way.
1: It really does, doesn't it? And, uh, and I feel that it isn't. I mean, that's the other thing that my travels have shown me. I think is. I know it sounds so corny, but basic humanity and that sense that we we're kind of all in it together, really. You know, one person, one country is not better than another person or another country. That it's, it's we're just in, in different places around dotted around the the world and so I've become a I don't I'm sure I'm not a nicer person I'm still irritable you know I can uh, be uh, quite bad tempered at times if I don't get what I want in the way of work you know because television news is a matter sadly of imposing your will on other people and making sure that you get what you want but it has made me a, a a nicer more relaxed person you might not think I'm relaxed but I <laughs> you actually come across am very
0: relaxed large six foot goldfish or no six foot goldfish <laughs> it seems like a lovely place to end however I did say at the beginning I was going to ask you about your thoughts on Brexit so I better do that to okay. honour what I said what the hell is going on with Brexit and what is your take on it
1: well I try to keep out of the uh, the rights and wrongs of it because i don't think that's my job and uh, the poor old bbc comes in for excoriation every day from people on, on both sides and now increasingly from people in the middle as well so i think i j- i just feel it's a it's a, it's a major screw-up and that uh, nobody on either side, really, but especially not on the Leave side, warned about the possibilities that that our entire political life might be paralysed as it is. Government can't think about anything else, which it can't. And the outcome is very, very questionable. But that's what you get when when a a nation is undecided, or at least it has, you know, sort of more or less 50-50. You hear a lot of people complaining about politician lack of political leadership. Well, there hasn't been much political leadership, it's true, but the problem is that we didn't make our minds up as a nation properly, and we're divided right down the middle, and our society is divided down the middle, and it's it's bloody, awful, and my wife said to me today, do you think we'll ever get out of this?" And I said, yeah, of course, you know, because we get, everybody gets out of everything. I mean otherwise we'd still be in the Middle Ages, but it's it's more painful than anything I've been through in Britain uh, over the over the decades and I, which is know, saying something isn't it, it well really is. i'm seventy four mm.
0: It really is saying something. And I feel that the divisions at the moment, some of them, you know, almost civil war-like feel unhealable. They really do. Yes.
1: yes. Well, I mean, you know, the, it's interesting, really, that the, the, the English civil war was fought along lines that sometimes seem quite similar, really. And, you know, that, that took, it was uh, 100 years before it was properly sorted out. I don't suppose it'll take that long to sort this out, but it it is depressing. And a friend of mine who's quite a, a strong Brexiteer, I mean, you'd know the name if I said it, said to me very privately, if I'd known that it was going to be as awful as this, I'd never have gone through with it.
0: Well, it's very brave because a lot of people wouldn't necessarily admit to that. No. But we no. just didn't know. And anyway, I'm no. a Remainer through and through. That seems, <laughs> uh, just to cheer it up for my last question, my last question is always about music because I think music and travel go very much hand in hand because people have more time to listen to music and it helps cement beautiful memories or memorable experiences when you're travelling. If you had to choose one song that reminded you of a memorable time or place of travel what would that one song be?
1: Well I think it would be a record by Duke Ellington and his famous band must have been made about 1927 I think and there's a slight a little bit of a backstory in Baghdad in the old souk which is a fantastic place dating back a thousand, more than a thousand years. I went into an old junk shop and I saw an absolutely gorgeous brass um, record player, old-fashioned, with a brass horn, you know, and the old turntable and everything with a handle to turn it up. And I I hopped up a, a ladder and got it down and said to the guy, how much was it? And he, we reached a deal. But he said, you'd probably like some records to go with it. Here are some. And he gave me this pile. And on the top was Running Wild by, uh, by Duke Ellington. And uh, I had a, an engineer, BBC engineer with me. And he kind of fitted the pieces together, and he, he started the thing up. And there, in this kind of medieval darkness of the souk, it was almost empty by that stage at night, there was these with this wonderful thing which I felt kind of summed up my life. I'm running wild, lost control, running wild, mighty bold, feeling gay, reckless too carefree mind all the time never blue and it I've I i can not play it without I mean when I do play it I play it quite often it's my like my kind of national anthem you know there I am bang in the middle of the Baghdad souk and uh so that's that would be my choice
0: that is the perfect (laughs) answer to that question the absolutely most perfect answer thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast
1: thank you what a pleasure what an honor
0: Thank you so much, John Simpson, for helping me fulfil a long-held ambition to talk to you about your work and travels. It was thoroughly enjoyable. And thank you so much for listening to The Big Travel Podcast. Remember, if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. See you next week.